Hi, I'm Dr. Shiloh. And I'm Dr. Scott. And this is LA Not So Confidential, the forensic psychology and true crime podcast. Each week, we explore the intersection of psychology, the criminal justice system, and entertainment. Today, our episode is on the forensic psych topic of bad religious leaders. Well, happy 2024, everyone. I mean, gosh, we said this last time, but where did 2023 go? <laughs> Seriously, I guess when you're moving 2,000 miles an hour, the year goes really quick. And it, it, feel, does. it feels like 2023 was like this desperate catch up for the two and a half years prior. That's that's my personal experience. That's, that's a great way to put it. I was looking back at all of our episode topics and I still don't understand how we managed to cover a shit ton of forensic psych topics on top of all the other stuff we do, like just keeps going. Yeah. Speaks to our stellar choice in job security, which is what I <laughs> spoke to you about in my most recent bizarre referral at work that I would love to be able to talk Man. about and I can't. <laughs> we were on the front steps of a building in downtown Los Angeles, just howling about this the other day. <laughs> it's unbelievable. Something It really is like sometimes this stuff, you know, people will probably watch elements of Law and Order, elements of SVU or elements of Dexter or elements of Nurse Jackie and go, well, that's just too bizarre. And, you, right. and I'm now that I've been in this for over a decade, I'm like, nope, no, nope, no, it's not. It's all it's all there. Well, and also in 2023, I mean, we managed to pull off a live show at Heritage Square Museum. I mean, that yeah. feels like eons ago. I know it was in this springtime, right? And yeah, along with two other people, like coordinating that. I mean, yeah, I used to cater and I do some, I know how to kind of structure events and kind right. of do the the groundwork, but like producing an event is a whole skill set that mm -hmm. that's not really you or I's wheelhouse. Yeah, yeah. And yet we managed to make it come off pretty well. That well, was great. Yeah. I think between the, the three of our shows and right. the information and knowledge and talent with Tammy and Bryce from Hollywood Paranormal and then Danielle and Greg from LA Meekly. We we had enough to make it, it felt rustic, but yeah. no, in a good way. And last time I was there, Corey's like, you guys have to do something else here again. I, I would totally do it again. And we learned so much about, about, for one thing, knowing that we just really, even if it comes out of pocket, we need, yeah. we're going to have to just pay and oh my God, because our our tech person just didn't show up. Yep. And then somebody else out of the blue last minute came in right. and did an amazing job. It was wonderful. So yeah. Oh, and we also this year, amazing, we did our first international crime con, I our know. first international convention, which was a stellar experience and kind of led us to exploration of some other ones, which I'm really excited about. We talked about the one in mm -hmm. Finland. We talked about the one in Iceland, which is really cool. Yes, so please. we'll be, we'll be applying to a couple of different places this year. Yeah. So this is probably a good time to remind folks that we will be back at CrimeCon UK, the ultimate true crime event, which returns to London on September 21st and 22nd, 2024. CrimeCon UK is the world's leading true crime event and is partnered by True Crime, the expert-led channel that was previously known as CBS Reality. And that's available on your platform of choice. So 
we've talked about it before, but it was just an exceptionally organized convention, exceptionally organized. Attendees got to sit on fascinating sessions with some of the biggest names in crime, like names way bigger than us, <laughs> like way bigger than us. We were honored to be a part of it. And that's going to continue next year. You can raise a glass with your favorite podcasters. You can chat with them. CrimeCon UK is really an unforgettable way for you to really immerse yourself into clearly what is the highest level of ethics in the true crime community. I say that without any reservation, any prompting at all. It's a step up and it, I think it's going to be the sort of the paradigm that true crime is going to be headed toward, right, rightly so. Yeah, they just seem to have that together in the UK. So I hope everyone else follows. And this time around, tickets are going to include things like free flow coffee, tea, biscuits, flavored water across the whole weekend. So you guys are totally taken care of. And then again, yeah, plenty of time to network with the crime contributors and the benefits for the VIP ticket holders have also been completely overhauled, giving them exclusive access and far more bang for their buck. So we're going to be there. Please come join us if you're able to. Feel free to use the code CONFIDENTIAL for your special 10% discount. The more of our listeners that use our code, the more that it helps us pay for our trip and accommodation. So please don't forget to use CONFIDENTIAL for 10% off, head over to crimecon.co.uk to book your tickets today. Yay, can't wait. Yes, so last episode recap, our last episode was just priming you all for today. At the end of December, we had our last documentary review of 2023 with The Devil on Trial. And this Netflix film tracks a bizarre story that includes demonic possession, demon hunters, exorcism, murder, and possible experiences of mental illness. It was written and directed by Chris Holt. The documentary takes on a fascinating subject with what I consider to be somewhat disappointing results. We gave our two cents, of course, examining the contradictions in the narrative and the very obvious missed opportunities for exploring family trauma. Yes. So... As you said, leading into our behind the collar episode today, I know I'm certainly experiencing this frequency illusion <laughs> with this topic of possession and exorcism since right. we watched that documentary. So I think I was telling you for Christmas, I got my daughter this scratch off poster. It's like the top 100 horror movies of all time. So she came to me on Christmas break and was like, I'm ready to watch The Exorcist. <laughs> so we did it during the day. Thank goodness. Just to, no, you I never you, know. <laughs> I made you send me some live action videos to see her responses. <laughs> yeah. So we watched The Exorcist and then on my way back to work this week, because I went back to work between Christmas and New Year, I was listening to the latest episode of You're Wrong About, and it was titled The Exorcist. And I was like, what? This is so weird. So of course I had to listen. And Sarah Marshall had on an author who they were talking about sort of the mythology of the movie, like you and I did many moons ago, but also this author had written a book about kind of being introduced to the movie through her mom and her mom's experiences of seeing it in the seventies when it first came out and then watching it together and then kind of, you know, what it what the film says about womanhood and society. And I was like, what's going on? Like, because <laughs> we're doing our research and getting ready to record. It was just, you know, one of those moments. <laughs> I love that they took the opportunity to do that because there's a lot to plumb there. A lot of the things that I think which I love about the younger generations is, you know, I, I feel like I push, I position myself to try and crack open my perspectives constantly. And it's, it's not particularly easy 
And that's right. okay. It, it's it's okay for it to be a challenge. And I really enjoy hearing voices like this that go, you know, as a millennial female looking back at this from 50 plus years ago about yeah. what this says about being a woman working in the entertainment industry, about being taken serious by the medical community. Yep. There's a lot there, even in this, you know, largely fictional version that's supposedly based on a true story. Yeah. Or just having a, a preteen daughter and <laughs> right or teenage daughters that are acting wild. And sometimes it's not as crazy as we make it out to be, but other parts of society could do that. Yeah. Still. <laughs> and, it, and it's still fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, certainly. Yeah. So what seems to be a running theme this month, we're going to circle back around to an episode topic that's been requested several times, and that is in regards to criminality in the clergy. We wanted to take our time with this episode and provide what we're especially trained to do, which is comment on the drives behind the behaviors that are committed by a subsection of our community's leaders that are tasked with and expected to provide safety, spiritual guidance, and at worst, do no harm, much like the medical community. And we're going to cover the breadth from minor and even comical offenses to the most severe and abusive examples of crimes committed by those that not only hide behind, but are often bolstered by their religious positions. Today, we focus on the perpetrators, right. not to glorify them, but to understand the psychological drives, which are prominent. And I don't think that they're talked about enough in the community. I, I hope this actually sparks some real discussion. Yeah. But Dr. Shiloh and I have already decided before we jumped on this morning that this episode is actually going to lead to another necessary episode, which is about the survivors of this type of abuse. And, you know, it's been talked about in The Keepers and some of the other movies out there, but we can drill down into the psych issues behind surviving and resiliency in the face of that kind of type of trauma. Yeah, it, it just felt necessary of course. And with like our other bad enter whatever profession here episodes, right. <laughs> we're not commenting on the profession or also in this case, the religious persuasion as a whole. This is simply just kind of a topical way for us to look at some of these psychological drives that you're talking about. And if you'll notice, like when we go back and look at the different professions that we've covered, there is usually an expectation of safety, security authority, which becomes tricky, right? In almost all of them. And, and that's kind of why we cover them because it's unexpected. Nurses, cops, counselors, lawyers, judges, you know, even athletes to some extent when you're talking about celebrity and we'll talk about power bases later on, but there's, there's certainly a theme. I doubt we'll ever do an episode on like, you know, bad accountants, but who knows? <laughs> <laughs> so with that, trigger warnings for today will be extensive. We'll be talking about physical abuse, sexual abuse, emotional manipulation, mass casualty, and genocidal crimes. So let's, before we get started and dive into the psych research, let's look at some very recent, more minor bad behavior by priests, I minor should Minor-ish. Minor-ish. <laughs> I mean, you know, compared yeah. to kind of what we all have in our head right, right now. right. Yeah. So we'll start with a disgraced Alabama priest, Mr. Alex Crow, and he fled to Italy recently with an 18-year-old woman over this past summer. And they're apparently married now, according to a marriage certificate filed in Mobile County. The woman is a 2023 high school graduate who turned 18 in June. Crow is the 30-year-old Catholic priest who had been suspended from his duties and will likely be officially ousted from the priesthood by the Vatican. The affair came to light when authorities discovered a love letter from Crow to the teenager on Valentine's Day when she was still a student. 
but also a reminder, the age of consent is 16 in Alabama. So she would have been 17 when she got this love letter. Of course, this brings up questions about authority and influence and grooming and all other inappropriate sexual behaviors, all things we're going to talk about today. But in this case, a criminal investigation in Mobile County was actually closed as the young woman declined to answer any questions posed by the prosecutors. Which she absolutely has the right to do. But I'm really glad that you pointed out that the age difference, and it, it's not just about the age difference. In in a healthy relationship, is there something to be gleaned with a 12-year age difference or a 13-year age difference? I don't have a problem with that. I'm challenged by the fact that the disparity in the ages comes at these two critical junctures for development. Mm. Yeah, you know, this is a one, this is a, a female who is entering womanhood and adulthood, and this is someone who not only is an, uh, the former priest is supposed to be someone who's already there as right. an adult and has committed to a higher calling, and actually within the church dispensing yourself of that higher calling in order to pursue worldly interests such as a physical relationship. There's a whole process involved, so. Yeah, this is a fascinating story yeah. that we probably won't be hearing a lot of because it is going to be able to fall through those cracks and just be legitimized. Although yeah. I think it's really, really creepy that like, did she know how to do a passport or was he, is, is that part of the grooming process of like, you got to file for a passport, you got to put away some cash, you got to do this, you got to. It's yeah, like, so we just creepy. don't know. Yeah, well, yeah, we don't know. So then we also have another example of 70 year old Father David Rosenberg. He just got hit with some serious charges in Michigan. The Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel says that the father has been up to no good, including embezzlement, larceny and tricking three elderly priests. Out of their money, Rosenberg, the former director of the St. Francis Retreat in DeWitt, is accused of stealing approximately $772,000 from three priests and diverting those funds to his quote-unquote charitable foundation entitled Faith First. Faith First, one word, no hyphen. <laughs> there you go. Two capital Fs. Exactly. Two capital Fs. The victims, including Father Benjamin Werner and Father Joseph Aubin, lived at the retreat center until their deaths, while the third victim, Father Ken McDonald, still resides there. The courts let him out on a 25000 personal bond, but with a catch. He can't manage anyone else's money and has to give up any legal powers he had over others' affairs. I am Classic really, elder abuse. It's classic elder abuse, and but where are the charges for elder abuse? Yeah, I know. Like that's that's three charges right there. So yeah, the, to yeah. get a slap on the wrist like that means that there's more to the story, and I hope that we'll hear more about what happens. I hope he gets more than a slap on the wrist. Crimes against the elderly just, ooh. They gut me. They are I know. so triggering. And maybe it's because I'm getting older and I'm like, oh my God, am I going to be able to <laughs> tell who these scammers are when I'm in my dotage? Don't worry, Dr. Scott, I'll manage everything for you. Okay? I know that's what scares me. That's what scares me. Because <laughs> you know, you're like this. I'm doing the wavy hand. You're like this, no, Dr. Shiloh. How dare you? You're, a, you're brilliant to the to the edge of psychopathy. I'm convinced my... of it. Moral compass is so on target. No, you're absolutely true. It's <laughs> seriously, you really are. What did what did we do? Like the last time I took a long trip, is I sent you everything. You talked about right. being a prepper, and I was yeah. the one that said, "Okay, hey, yep. If something happens to us on the road, here are the family contacts. Here's how to. Here's our landlord. Here's who you contact. Here's where everything is." Yeah. So you're the paranoid one, and I'm the one that just makes you feel safe and secure. 
Well, I would say you're a little paranoid too, but it's all, it's, we have our paranoia focused in different areas, right? It is that, that text is saved. I'm also going to print it out and put it in my safe with all my other family documents. So See? we got you, we got yeah. you. Good. Okay. So lastly here, I stumbled upon this priest that actually has a crime with a sort of a link to exorcism. Hmm. So Father Winston Cabating, he is a Dominican theologian and exorcist at the Archdiocese of Manila. And he was detained on charges of a 1930s crime called offending religious feelings out there in the Philippines. So, okay, what is that? Because we have some issues of freedom of religion and speech here. But again, this is not the U.S. we're talking about. So let's see what we got here. Definitely not the U.S. It's very different there. Yeah. But this is really interesting. So he was accused by a devout Catholic, Harriet Demetrio, and she's a former justice and elections chief over there in in Manila. And she accused him of being a rabid critic of Our Lady Mary Mediatrix of All Grace, which in the Philippines is linked to the reported 1948 apparition of Mary that was witnessed by a woman in Lipa City. So apparently this apparition has been a source of tension between the Catholic church and some devotees with the church saying that there's actually nothing miraculous about the event and kind of dismissing it. So Demetrio files these charges against Cabating saying that he basically performed acts offensive to the faithful who believe in this apparition during religious gatherings and ceremonies by which the law in the Philippines can carry a two-year prison term if you're found guilty of this. And Demetrio pointed out that Cabating had made statements at the 2019 National Conference of Spiritual Ministry and Exorcism, in which he spoke of demons mimicking anything they want, including spiritual apparitions, as in this 1948 incident. And he stands by and basically says that his statements are protected by freedom of speech and expression. And this is just super interesting because it's it is. it's almost like someone can just say, I'm offended religiously by this religious leader. And now it turns into a criminal matter. Yeah, that's very interesting because not knowing anything more about either of those two individuals, the, the, the priest and the accuser, mm-hmm. spiritual experiences can be very important to people. Right. And I'm, I, I don't, I'm not saying whether or not those are legitimate. It's not my place to say, but an experience is an experience and we can attach meaning to it. That being said, the actual existing departments within the Catholic Church for exorcism and even those attached to miracles and beatification and sainthood, there is a very, very strict outline of what meets the criteria. And it seems like what he was saying is, hey, this really hasn't met the criteria. And if we're going to invest our beliefs in what the Catholic Church has said is real or not real, again, folks, I'm not for or against this. But if you're going to engage in that belief system, then that is part of the idea of understanding the spirit world is that some spirits can imitate other experiences. Yeah. That's that's the belief system. So again, yeah, yeah that's a really, that's kind of hardcore. So how are you able to minister to your flock? I don't right. know. That's But that's very interesting that that even came up, but not surprised about the Philippines, which has some very, very strict laws that we would be shocked at here mm-hmm. in the U.S. Mm-hmm. So while today's episode focuses mainly on these crimes about the clergy, there's an unfortunate history of religious authority being misused around the world. 
that has led to significant social, political, and ethical consequences. And this abuse of power can take many forms from the consolidation of political influence and control, as well as justification of acts that would be considered criminal today. Between the years of 1095 and 1291, a period of 200 years, the Catholic Crusades were initiated by Pope Urban II. There was a series of religious wars in the name of Christianity aimed at recapturing the Holy Land from Islamic rule. These wars resulted in the widespread massacre of non-Christians, including Muslims, Jews, Eastern Christians, and indigenous folk religions. So are we just going way back, way back? <laughs> well, I know it's like, but I think that it's it's important to say that like in the big picture of oh, no, just, for sure. justified abuse, like what we're doing is we're funneling down to like individuals, right? Yes. The individuals base their actions on the armor that they feel yeah grounding them from their absolutely yeah their their systems these patriarchal it, systems yeah no it it all plays into the psyche i just wanted to like break and be like okay guys this is a history lesson i know but it's only a couple of short paragraphs we promise well, we promise yeah. like we'll get into the good stuff right so okay 200 years later the Spanish Inquisition used religious authority to justify severe punishments including torture and execution for those accused of deviations from the Orthodox Catholic beliefs, consistently using that claim that their victims did not share these accepted religious beliefs. So then we have from the 15th to the 18th centuries, the witch hunts in Europe were sanctioned by various religious authorities, both Catholic and Protestant, leading to the persecution and again, torture and execution of tens of thousands of individuals, mainly women. The witch hunts were fueled by things we've talked about here, hysteria, misconceptions about heresy, and often as a means to strip women of power, land, and money. And then jumping forward to 1947, the division of British India into India and Pakistan was influenced by religious nationalism and led to one of the largest human migrations in history, again, accompanied by horrific communal violence. Religious leaders on both sides played roles in inciting or justifying this violence. And one more example, many Dutch reformed church leaders supported apartheid, a system of institutionalized racial segregation and discrimination in South Africa, often providing religious justifications for these segregationist policies. So the history of sexual abuse by priests within the Catholic church is a deeply troubling and ongoing complex issue that spans several decades, if not centuries, really. Widespread and chronic abuse within the church gained widespread public attention in the last 30 years, particularly with high-profile cases and investigations in the United States, Ireland, as well as other countries. And for context, and just citing one independent report here in France alone, it was found that over 200,000 victims had been abused by the Catholic priests from 1950 to 2020, 80% of the victims being boys. That's a shocking, shocking number. The cases revealed systemic failures within the Catholic Church to recognize, report, address, and prevent the abuse, often involving extensive and radical cover-ups, as well as the transfer of offending priests to new parishes without disclosing their past actions. Over and over again, the transfers led to those priests receiving what amounts to being a slap on the wrist for punishment and opening the door to a new set of victims. Yep, which we know happens right with putting themselves in power and positions to have access to many victims exactly and all all of these powers of position not just yes. the clergy yes especially when we're talking about people that are 
truly, you know, could be diagnosed with pedophilic disorder right. and who are offenders, they certainly follow that behavior. And victims, many of whom were children at the time of the abuse, suffered profound and lasting trauma, leading to significant legal, financial, and moral challenges for the Catholic Church. The scandals prompted the church to implement new policies for the protection of children, mandatory reporting of abuse allegations, and stricter screening for seminary candidates, although critics continue to legitimately argue that these measures are not yet sufficiently comprehensive or uniformly enforced. And I think we'll probably talk about that more in our next episode when we focus Absolutely. on victims. Because it is, it's not strictly enforced. It's right. not. Yeah, it's not. And just to be clear, again, we're not painting all Catholic church leaders with a broad brush here. I wanted to point out that according to a comprehensive study by John Jay College, they estimate that 4% of priests from 1950 to 2002 were accused of sexual abuse. So if you're kind of conceptualizing in your head, well, like how many people are responsible for this? I don't want to say 4% as a small number. Right. We're very clear on that. Right. Yeah. But I just, I want to put it in perspective because I think we have this conversation a lot when people ask us about yes. like recidivism rates for sex offenders, people think astronomical rates and it isn't necessarily that. And, and there's also something important to, to note that much like the horrific individuals like Larry Nasser or coaches that allow yeah. these things to happen, it, even if it's only 4% of priests from 1950 to 2002, that does not speak to the percentage of victims. You know, right. one individual can perpetrate over a career of 50 years, can perpetrate upon hundreds of individuals. Yep. And also, we're not just talking about sexual abuse. We're talking about the Catholic Church, or an example, not just the Catholic Church, but the Catholic Church condoning child slave labor of orphans to build schools in Australia, which is another mm. huge scandal that came up a few years ago. Yep. Yeah, certainly. Within the Catholic Church, the term clericalism refers to the overemphasis on the authority and privilege of the clergy often to the detriment of lay members. This concept played a significant role in the church's cover-up of sexual abuse as it created a hierarchy where priests and bishops were seen as beyond reproach or accountability even. Clericalism fosters an environment where the reputation of the church and its leaders is prioritized over the welfare of abuse victims. The protective veil that clericalism provided enabled abusive priests to escape scrutiny and punishment and continues today in other areas, such as parochial schools, where protection of students is overshadowed by the reputation and prestige of being a church-related school. And while the focus of abuse by the clergy tends to center on priests within the Catholic Church, there's growing evidence of widespread abuse within fundamental and evangelical communities, many of which our true crime listeners will be quite familiar with by following cases that finally come to prosecution and or by watching true crime documentaries every single month. Seems like there's a new one. Yes. Unfortunately. Or no, and... no, no. You know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take it back. I think it's fortunate. I think it's okay. really great that this is all coming to light, especially with the particular case that you're going to cover a little bit later. Oh, People yes. need to know that this is happening in your communities, in your rural areas where it's just easier to turn your head the other way. People need to know about that. And that's what these documentaries can really shed a light on. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, there's those of us that kind of don't have a, a stake in the game as far as, you know, 
what side we fall on and we're naturally just kind of more in the gray. And I hope people who do fall on either side of some of these do also expose themselves to this to try and understand that it's not black and white, even when it comes to religion. So I thought it would be interesting to kind of look at what theories are floating around out there. Is there any research specifically looking at Catholic sexual abuse? And, you know, we know a lot about the cover-up now, but what the heck is going on in the first place, right? So I guess we can file this one under opinions that aren't very helpful, but I thought it was notable to bring up. Good classification there. Thank you. That in 2019, retired Pope Benedict published a 6,000 word essay, essentially blaming the Catholic church scandal on the sexual revolution of the sixties. Like that was his hypothesis. (laughs) Oh, and he like, as a side note was like, Oh, and church laws that protect priests. (laughs) Very, very side note there. Ultimately, he said pedophilia reached epidemic levels due to an absence of God. He cited the appearance of sex in films in his native Bavaria and the formation of, quote, homosexual cliques in seminaries, which he also said acted more or less openly and significantly changed the climate. Well, we could so, we could spend an entire episode pulling that apart and well, and just yes. sort of shredding it. But you know, it's, it's six thousand so words. The, I wasn't going to read it all. Exactly, the Pope is the word, the mouthpiece of God, allegedly. So I guess that's what he's going to say. But in a study published in the International Journal of Child Abuse and Neglect in 2011, it was revealed that clerical training played a role in fostering a predisposition to commit child sex abuse. Again, horrific news, but glad it's being talked about because this research conducted with nine clergy members from Ireland who had perpetrated such abuse indicated that emotional and sexual development issues likely present in those entering the seminary were aggravated by the training and the culture they experienced. Mind-blowing and yet not surprising and so important to know because this study emphasized the prohibition of friendship, community, and the promotion of sexuality as innately sinful contributes to intensifying psychological conflicts that originated in the offender's early lives. Textbook, right? Like we've been crowing about this stuff for years. It's not surprising at all because these findings suggested that a culture within the training of the Irish Catholic priests that hindered the integration of emotional and sexual development, leading to serious intimacy and relationship difficulties for some individuals. The study highlights a failure in the clerical training culture to address and rectify early psychological problems, instead contributing to the exacerbation of these issues. The research supports the idea that these unique factors within the clerical environment contribute to child sexual abuse, suggesting a multifactorial model for the development of such offenders. And likely on the flip side should be the hallmark paradigm for how you screen out such individuals that are applying. And then even like, I'm not telling you what to do, but it's also about how you go about promoting a need for priests or clergy or nuns. Anybody's like, you need to put out there what is expected instead of just like, oh, you're calling yeah. You know, this yeah. weird amor- amorphous religious calling that has brought you to this this place. Well, there's the conundrum, right? Because how do you question someone's calling? <laughs> and then that could lead to just kind of taking whomever says that, you know, it's my calling. Who are you to question that? Well, you, a- you ask deep and interesting questions. Yes. about What does your calling mean to you? Right. And how does right. that affect you? And then like like cop evaluations, you know, the, yeah. the pre-employment. Of, 
Yeah, exactly. Pre-employment screening. So I'm looking at this particular paragraph you just read about the study and what is jumping off the page to me is those static and dynamic factors that we target in sex offender treatment, like lack of, you know, knowledge about sexual intimacy and how to get those needs met. Not even just sexual intimacy, emotional intimacy, relationships. If that is stunted and essentially just told like, no, you can't cross that boundary at all. What is, I don't want to say what is someone to do, but within a lot of other risk factors. Again, we always talk about like that perfect storm of factors, especially for opportunistic and situational offenders, not truly pedophilic offenders. That's how this ends up unfolding for just sexual offenders that aren't even involved in the church. So it's a really good point, though, that it doesn't have to necessarily include or require a diagnosis of pedophilia. No, it's about opportunity and stunted development. Right. Right. Not getting your needs met in an appropriate way. Right. Or, and probably not knowing how to. Right. Right. Exactly. However, a significant study conducted by the researchers at John Jay College of Criminal Justice explored the causes and context of the clergy sexual abuse crisis in the U.S. Catholic Church as well. And so that one was looking at a handful of a sample of priests in Ireland. And this study reflected back here in the U.S. So the study titled The Causes and Context of Sexual Abuse of Minors by Catholic Priests in the United States, 1950 to 2010, concluded that there was no single cause or predictor of such abuse. The report also emphasized the role of situational factors and opportunities in the initiation and perpetuation of the abusive acts. They found that the majority of cases occurred decades ago with an increase in frequency in the 60s and 70s. And the study refuted claims that celibacy or homosexuality were direct causes of abuse, asserting that priests who later engaged in abuse couldn't be distinguished by psychological, developmental, or intelligence data. So they just couldn't parse that apart. Doesn't mean we can't at some point, but with the data sample they had, they weren't able to significantly say they had something robust enough to sort of categorize that. The study also highlighted that initially in the mid-1980s, bishops focused on assisting priest abusers rather than addressing victim concerns. Duh, we know that. Right. But it's nice that it's wrapped up in this. While comprehensive plans for responding to victims were established by the mid-1990s, The consistent and thorough implementation by diocese really varied. And despite this, there was a more rapid decrease in the incidence of sexual abuse cases by clergy as compared to the rates perpetrated by offenders in the general population. So it's interesting. (laughs) Well, just to say, like once, uh, uh oh, realizing people's hands were in the cookie jar and people start taking notice, then you see the cases start dropping, unlike the general population just kind of went at the same rate. Of sexual offending. Yeah. So what I'm interested in in diving deeper into that study is seeing what metrics were used, you know, because they can they can say, okay, like here's this comprehensive study, mm-hmm. but they're saying that it couldn't be distinguished by psychological developmental or intelligence data. Well, what did they do for the psychological data? Were they conducting, you know, MMPIs? to get sort of any hints of narcissism, any hints of psychopathy, because that's where I'm going today. Right. right. You know, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm theorizing, I'm hypothesizing, excuse me, because I'm hypothesizing that there is a drive here that has a lot to do with a constellation of personality factors. Yeah. I think when we kind of compare and contrast these two studies, you look at one that clearly like clinical interviews with nine people who were offenders. Right. And you get a lot of data out of that. I'm sure thematically they're able to pull like, okay, these are 
what these folks were saying. They were like before and during and after and during the, you know, so it's very, you know, you go, okay, only nine people, but you can get a lot of detail from that. Whereas a bigger study where maybe you just send out surveys, eh, you might be getting some stuff and it can be quote unquote comprehensive and large, but what is the detail that you're getting? Yeah. And then, you know, I really feel that narcissism plays, you, you know, a, a very strong part. We're not talking, I'm not necessarily talking about a full blown narcissistic personality disorder, but, you know, traits, flavors, yeah. tendencies, disinhibition, and just, you know, as our reminder, it's narcissism is a concept that's very well known by our listeners, and it can be viewed as a full blown diagnosis, as I said, or it can be the singular or multifactorial expression of a cluster of traits that would be that would otherwise be included in that diagnosis. So narcissistic responses can happen to many very well emotionally balanced and well-functioning individuals in a number of situations, or the expression can be a part of a larger and more nebulous expression of several different personality disorders or neurological differences. And in today's case, however, we're focusing on some pretty hardcore defined and diagnostic traits that intersect with flagrantly and horrible criminal acts. So narcissism, just as a reminder, characterized by an enlarged and generally unearned or undeserved sense of self-importance, a generally unrecognized and profound need for excessive attention and admiration. So the person, the individual can really, really need that type of attention and validation from those around them and be completely unaware that they really need that as a narcissistic source, as a like a, a way to recharge their batteries. Also, very importantly, whether it's feigned or mimicked, a serious lack of empathy for others. So I'm not saying that narcissists are always, or people with narcissistic traits are always going to come across as being cold and distant. You know, they can very well ape the qualities of someone who is empathic and compassionate, but generally it's just a sort of, oh, this is the way I'm supposed to act versus how they internally experience relationships. So these factors can understandably have significant implications in various aspects of expressed behavior, including a tendency or let's say a potential or a lack of inhibition towards criminality. Yeah, yeah. I, You know, I just have to say, I know we always task you with talking about narcissism, but we do that because I feel like you bring it to us in such a different way every time. And I learn something more nuanced about narcissism. Every time you speak about it, I could hear you talk about it forever. <laughs> well, and I'm, I'm learning more as well because yeah. I, you know, we've, we've spoken about this in our live streams and I talk about it with my colleagues about your education as a therapist or any type of clinician in personality disorders or maybe diagnosis can be really limited if your school says, here's the DSM, here's what mm -hmm. you have to learn. Because especially when it comes to personality disorders, there is such deep and profound work out there that is way beyond the DSM. That's why I'm always, if anybody is out there and you want to learn more about narcissism, go read Eleanor Greenberg's books, go to her Quora page, go to her personal homepage, this woman on the East Coast is a lovely, lovely writer. And she is herself was a victim of narcissistic abuse. And she writes so elegantly. I, so I just want to, I guess I'm just saying that because I'm learning as well. Yeah. And I want to share it. And as I become more proficient in understanding, I want our listeners to as well.
So thank you for that. I appreciate it. Yes, of course. Again, we want to be clear that while not all narcissists engage in criminal activities, there are certain traits certainly associated with narcissism, such as entitlement, exploitativeness, and a disregard for the rights of others that can predispose individuals towards law-breaking behaviors. And it is understood that narcissists often rationalize their actions to fit their self-image, sort of dismissing or justifying unethical or illegal acts. You know, those can be cognitive distortions in and of themselves that are certainly not just attributed to narcissists, but we certainly see it with them. And then they also believe or may believe that they have a moral or ethical code that is informed by their culture or religious beliefs. And this dance of rationalization is particularly evident in things like white collar crimes where narcissistic traits and disinhibition can really drive them to commit fraud, embezzlement, or other forms of financial malfeasance, which isn't that a great phrase, like a band name or something. (laughs) Welcome to the stage, financial malfeasance. I love it. I love it. Would I go see them if I saw them on a play on a bill? I would want to hear mm. what their music's like. Yeah. I would, I would. And I would like some solid tax advice, like at the end. <laughs> there's a great, there's a great bit in the wonderful independent movie called Young Adult with yep. Charlize Theron. And she mm-hmm. plays a very personality disordered and wounded individual that is really good. But her ex-boyfriend's wife is a mother and she has a rock band with several of her friends that are all mothers. And the name of their band is nipple confusion. Oh my God. That's like so great. I just like that's burned in my memory as a great line. (laughs) We are nipple confusion. Oh my gosh. Wow. Okay. Seriously though, a narcissist can justify these actions under the mask of culturally validated ambition or exceptionalism Again, there's a reason that Fortune 500 companies look for antisocial traits in their employees and in their leaders. And there's an overlap of antisocial and narcissistic traits, including, as we mentioned, a lack of empathy, manipulative and exploitative behavior, and that disregard for the rights and feelings of others. So while those with NPD typically display excessive self-importance, a need for admiration, and a sense of entitlement, those with ASPD will primarily exhibit chronic patterns of irresponsible and criminal behavior, deceitfulness, and impulsivity. You will see it in their actions. Yes, their actions and behaviors. And narcissists are naturally attracted to positions of power and influence. Like we're saying, religion, politics, business, entertainment, education, medicine, law, and the military, all because of this magnetic pull towards grandiosity, control, admiration. We see it really a lot in the evangelical community with these people that are basically, you can see the hunger for being a validated performer in their eyes. Yeah. The, it's, you know, people, I think, misinterpret it for the the gift of the spirit when they just like, I want to be on Star Search. That's, yeah, they're that's an entertainer. Sort of, yeah, they're an entertainer, a, a toxic entertainer. In business, narcissistic leaders can prioritize personal goals over organizational well-being. And then in results, they create toxic work environments, potentially leading to a company's downfall. Many, many stories of this. Mm-hmm. One happening <laughs> concurrently with he who shall not be named. <laughs> but in politics, their focus on self-interest can also lead to unethical behaviors that'll just impact public welfare and cause a trickle effect that affects 
you know, communities, states, countries, the big commonality here is that the disorders really exhibit a markedly diminished capacity for remorse. And while these factors can seriously affect work and personal relationships, a position in power and employment can provide an opportunity where these deficits are not recognized. We can be so careful about HR rules that we don't absolutely hone in and address what the real source of the problem is. Mm. Yeah. So in the field of medicine, narcissistic doctors might prioritize personal recognition over patient care, potentially jeopardizing, obviously, the health of that patient. A great and particularly chilling example of this is the first season of the Wondery Produce podcast, Dr. Death. And then in law, so narcissistic lawyers may focus more on personal success than client welfare, engaging in unethical practices that might directly conflict with their education training and duty to the client, duty to the law, duty to government and justice. And then interestingly, the military attracts narcissists due to its hierarchical structure and opportunities for recognition, like a bunch of medals on your chest, though this can conflict with the collective needs of the unit. And we've also talked about if it's too far on the spectrum into psychopathy, it really doesn't work well because they just... They're not able to hold a structure. Yeah, They can't follow through with that first part and abiding by authority and and falling in line. They they kind of just want to do what they want. And that systemically is not what the military is about. But if you can navigate- (laughs) I do what I want. I do what I want. want. (laughs) But if if you have some traits and you can navigate your way through and rise to the top, I mean, it obviously is kind of similar in business. But then in religious leadership, they can exploit their position for personal gain, again, rather than serving their congregation, as well as be driven by other comorbid diagnoses. I thought it would be pertinent just to put in a quick review on power bases here that we've talked about in many of our episodes, talking about sexual abuse, particularly. And really, a power base can be absolutely real or it can be a factor that makes power perceived. So it can be tangible, like it can be the size of the perpetrator makes the victim feel unsafe or makes them feel like a victim. It can be the presence of a weapon during a crime. It could be a little tiny person that maybe physically you could take in a fight, but if they're holding a firearm, that could change the the whole structure, the whole dynamic so that they definitely have the power So it can be something like that, or it can be status, it can be authority, it can be celebrity, if we've talked about before. If if you feel like they are going to have some sort of influence that could further hurt you down the line, this is pretty classic in like workplace sexual harassment, right? There's this power dynamic, and there's a power base that ultimately supervisors and bosses have that's just something that on the surface might not say, gosh, well, what, you know, how could you be victimized or how could you, like we often question victims and say, put yourself in that position. Sometimes that position naturally exists because of these power bases. So going back to the the clergy examples, really one of those primary factors enabling Catholic church pre-sexual abuse is that power dynamic between clergy and their congregants, particularly if they're minors. So just there, you have two power bases. The fact they're in a position of authority, and now that we're talking about an adult versus 
a child and the church's hierarchical structure puts priests in a position of reverence and power and authority and all knowing. And then you put on top of that, the fact that, you know, maybe they are a mouthpiece for God. I mean, how can you get more authoritative than that? Right. right. So this really is, is something that needs to be considered even when we, you know, probably will venture into this next time, but talking about the trust that is built primarily, you know, with these families, with parents where, you know, again, we often look to parents and families and go, how could you not know? Or how did you not pick up on this? And there's just so much trust and belief built into these relationships. It makes, honestly, it, it makes perpetration and predators picking out victims much easier. So adding on to sort of the personality disorders factor, I am always really fascinated about this intersection between that and a concept entitled behavioral drift. And behavioral drift is a concept in criminology, and it refers to the gradual process by which individuals will deviate from socially accepted norms and behaviors towards criminal activities, whether minor or major. Behavioral drift can happen in interpersonal relationships also for a number of reasons, and it's more prominently seen in employment structures where individuals have opportunity to consider and act on behaviors and decisions that would be considered moral ethical or criminal failures. And again, happens in business structures. It can happen in relationships too. That's why we have a a very successful industry for marriage counseling. (laughs) In the context of narcissism, this drift can be facilitated by the individual's constant pursuit of admiration and validation, which then might lead to increasingly risky or unethical behaviors. It can be motivated by a sense of entitlement in situations where actions taken may result in financial gain. The individual may then justify the actions because, well, I don't get paid enough. I deserve this. Or Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, it was wrong, but look how much money I made the company, and now I look even better. So the narcissist's sense of superiority and invulnerability can contribute to this drift, and they may believe that they're smart enough to outwit the law or rationalize that their actions serve a higher purpose. That particular purpose would likely be seen as wildly inappropriate by peers or superiors because, again, using the term drift. You have drifted away from the boundaries, the paradigm of acceptable behavior. Behavioral drift is a very slippery slope, usually starting with minor ethical compromises that will then pave the way through disinhibition for more serious criminal acts. They become increasingly desensitized to the moral and legal implications of their actions. So as everyone is starting to see this intersection of narcissism and criminality is a big deal in scenarios where individuals hold positions of power and influence. In such cases, the narcissist's ability to manipulate and exploit magnifies the potential for serious harm to entire organizations, and then of course the individuals and society at large. The combination of narcissistic traits and a permissive environment that fails to check or challenge these behaviors can allow openings to systemic corruption, abuse of power, and large-scale fraud. So we also want to explore a term or classification that's used in the study of child abuse, and that is called narcissistic child sex abusers, known by the acronym NCSAs. In an article by William E. Krill Jr., and he is an LPC in Pennsylvania, he highlights that while not all individuals with personality disorders are narcissistic child sex abusers, 
all NSCAs exhibit some form of personality disorder, often within the cluster B personality disorder spectrum that we've explored earlier. Krill asserts that NCSAs can exhibit traits from mild narcissism to full-blown psychopathy, and he goes on to emphasize the complexity of addressing child sex abuse due to the overlap of mental health legal and cultural languages. And he reiterates the very concerning statistic that one in three girls and one in six boys will be sexually assaulted by an adult by age 18. Really enjoyed discovering this guy and his website. And it was, I enjoyed it so much. I was like, wait, is this guy too good for to be true? So I did some background <laughs> research on it good. to make sure like he wasn't someone that sort of was off of our ethical compass as well. And I was wonderfully relieved to see that he's written some wonderful things about surviving these types of abuses and recognizing these traits to protect children. So highly recommend going to his website. Yeah, I think that stat on boys is even um, more prominent now that, you know, we're starting to get a culture where yep. it's okay to report for boys or they're feeling like it's a little bit more accepted. So I think it's actually about one in four, one in five boys that will be sexually assaulted by age 18. But NCSAs are described by Krill as individuals who can blend into any social stratum and often appear as regular charming people. Their grooming tactics are not limited to the child victims, but also extended to the community to maintain their image making their eventual exposure shocking to those close to them. NCSAs are compulsive liars, lack empathy, and use rationalizations to justify their actions. Their sexual behavior with children is an extension of their narcissistic need for control and gratification. I would also say this is what we see with the individuals diagnosed with pedophilic disorder is that they also have these traits. So those are intersecting as well. And Krill discusses how NCSAs may have little skill in adult relationships, finding it easier to exploit children who are less likely to challenge them. The power imbalance is a significant aspect of the abuse with NCSAs forcing children to bear responsibility for keeping the abuse secret. And the effects on victims are profound, leading to long-term psychological trauma and vulnerability to future abuse. So even though this episode is more perpetrator-focused, I'm still going to put some resources in the show notes that are for victims, particularly of clergy abuse, so that those links will be in, in show notes for you guys to easily access. Well, we could have highlighted a lot of different cases in this portion of the show, and we always... <laughs> I feel like we try to do a mix. Right. It's unfortunate that there are so many to choose from, right? We went back and forth a lot. Like I was like, okay, well, let's pull these, you know, sort of egregious cases of, you know, a priest with tens of thousands of child sexual abuse images. And honestly, there were just, unfortunately, a lot of cases like that. Yeah. And there was one out of Ohio where this clergy leader had essentially groomed his victims from like kindergarten into sex trafficking. Like regardless, you know, Scott and I try to do a mix of well-known cases and lesser known cases in these instances. When we talk about a criminal case linked to what our topic is, having said that it was very overwhelming to choose. So with that consideration, we have spent a good deal of time talking about the Catholic church we decided to go with offenses committed by Warren Jeffs. So to, to deviate a little bit from that. 
So first, just another little bit of clarification for moving forward. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, LDS, does not sanction polygamy, but the Fundamentalist Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, FLDS, is still very into having multiple wives. The policy of the LDS Church has been anti-polygamy. Since then, Church President Wilford Woodruff issued a manifesto to that effect in 1890. So just wanted to put that out there because people can just interchange LDS and FLDS a lot. All right. So let's get on to this epic piece of shit. That's our topic today. Yeah. So Warren Jeffs was born on December 3rd, 1955 to Rulon Jeffs, the then president of the FLDS and was one of over 60 children born to Rulon's 70 plus wives. Growing up outside Salt Lake City, Jeffs later became the principal of Alta Academy, an FLDS private school at the entrance of Little Cottonwood Canyon, where he served for two decades. Assuming the role at age 21, Jeffs not only led the school, but also taught math, history, and church history and was responsible for daily devotionals. Despite being known for his accessibility to students for homework help, gross, yeah. he also gained notoriety for his disciplinary habits, instructing girls to, quote unquote, stay sweet by avoiding boys. Blech. Yeah, it's all of it is gross. Upon Rulon, his father's death on September 8th, 2002, Warren assumed leadership of the FLDS. Former church members allege that Jeffs took extreme measures to seize power after his father's death. Winston Blackmore, the former head of an FLDS group in British Columbia, claimed that Jeffs disrupted families and diverted church funds into his personal account to solidify his reign. Highly advise people, if you can stomach it, to watch the documentary on him. And it shows, I mean, he... This guy is a, just a, he's a 2D fruity ice cream mix of personality disorders all over the place. I'm telling you. Yeah. I mean, we're already seeing, right. Like trying to rise to power, the fraud, like it's like, we're ticking off things that we just talked about, but that's not all. Rulon Jeffs was survived by approximately 20 of his wives and Warren married all but two of them, promising a life as if Rulon were in the next room. One former spouse who resisted marrying the new leader faced a ban on future marriages while another woman left the church permanently. Brent Jeffs, a nephew of Warren Jeffs, has made accusations of sexual assault against his uncle. According to Brent, the incidents occurred when he was merely five years old and involved both Warren Jeffs and Warren's brothers. Documents from his lawsuit assert that Jeffs forcibly took the boy out of classes, leading him to a bathroom where the assault took place, accompanied by threats of eternal damnation if he disclosed the abuse. Brent alleges that several children, including his own brother, experienced similar mistreatment from Uncle Warren. During his reign as president of the church, Jeffs had accumulated approximately 70 wives, some as young as six years old. Relocating to West Texas, he founded the Yearning for Zion, the YFZ Ranch, and proceeded to expel 21 men, from his community in 2004. This is an ongoing problem in the fundamentalist branch of the church is that there is no need for any competition. So the teenage boys are just literally, they're thrown out, go, mm -hmm. go figure out life on your own. Those who remained were subjected to stringent regulations with Jeff's dictating their attire and marital choices and imposing restrictions on television and internet access. While Jeff's pursuit of authority elevated him within the FLDS, it also garnered him numerous adversaries. 
the creation of YFZ and a series of lawsuits, including the allegations of assault by his nephew, subjected Jeffs to FBI scrutiny. He went on the lam, and despite disappearing, Arizona law enforcement indicted him on charges related to sexual conduct with a minor, conspiracy, and acting as an accomplice to an underage marriage, a 14-year-old girl and her 19-year-old cousin. So between 2004 and 2006, Jeffs moved between various FLDS compounds equipped with burner phones, disguises, and cash. He was added to the FBI's 10 most wanted list in 2006, and his evasion fueled beliefs among his followers that he was divinely protected because, you know, he's he's on the lam and they just can't catch him, so God must be looking over him. In 2006, he was stopped in Las Vegas carrying $50,000 and multiple phones, but no weapons. Released after questioning, he faced charges in Utah, separate from those in Arizona. And on September 25th, 2007, Jeffs was found guilty in Utah and sentenced to 10 years to life in prison. But the conviction was overturned in 2010 due to jury instruction issues. The Arizona charges... Those were also dismissed in the same year. However, he couldn't outrun the law in Texas. In 2011, Jeffs was convicted in Texas on two counts of sexual assault of a child, receiving a life sentence. During his trial, the prosecution presented not only DNA evidence to prove that there was a child that he had fathered with a 15-year-old girl. They also, I mean, they brought out everything. They even played audio recordings in which he was actually heard sexually assaulting a 12-year-old girl. They had audio recordings of him giving instructions to young wives. They didn't say necessarily that they were all minors, but young wives on how to please him sexually. I mean, they, they really had a case that would have really hit the jury hard with some of these victims' interactions with him. So, you know, embedded in this was a lot of language where he is urging the young girls to have sex with him and calling these quote unquote sessions heavenly or celestial. So you really start to get the idea of intertwining the sexual behaviors and the sexual quote unquote duties with their relationship with God. So from prison, he continued issuing directives and he released a book called Jesus Christ's Message to All Nations, essentially that called for his release and predicted the end of the world in 2012. Gee, what an original idea, Warren. <laughs> I think other people were already, you know, had that idea. But facing mounting lawsuits, Jeff's claimed multiple nervous breakdowns. He also attempted suicide in 2007 and in 2011 while in custody ending up in a coma as well after a hunger strike. And in 2019, I guess the most recent breakdown he conveniently had, it prevented him from testifying in a lawsuit against a woman who was accusing him of sexual abuse when she was a child. So yeah. talk about a case that hits on everything that Absolutely. we talked about today. Yeah, it's it's really... And it also reflects back on something larger in the community is that you, you know, various, people can have various opinions about the government and interference in people's lives. But, you know, th for those that complain about government interference, I would say, well, there's not a lot of interference here. 
Yeah, no you know, kidding. This guy, these people are getting away with it. And Jeff's is not the only one. There are no. other individuals that have flown under the radar. Maybe they don't have 70 wives, but they've got 10, 20, yeah. 30. And they're creating disenfranchised communities across the country. Also that are absolutely utilizing a term called bleeding the beast, where they use state laws to their advantage to basically have all of their wives on social security and disability mm, yeah. and pull funds, you know, but like the government is evil. So we're allowed to do this. It's really, right. really disgusting. The The documentary that we mentioned is Keep Sweet, Pray and Obey. It's a rough watch, but very, very, very well done, I think. So certainly there's a plethora of media representations, both documentary, fictional, partial fiction, historical fiction, some really yeah. good stuff out there. One of them that's very well known is Spotlight. Spotlight is a 2015 American biographical drama directed by Tom McCarthy, written by McCarthy and Josh Singer, and it follows the Boston Globe's Spotlight team, the oldest continually operating newspaper investigative journalist in the United States, and the investigation into the widespread cases and systemic child abuse in the Boston area by a lot of Catholic priests. This film is riveting and it is written so and directed and played out like a thriller, like a really, really uncomfortable thriller. Mm -hmm. I just, everybody is great in it. Mark Ruffalo, Michael Keaton, Rachel McAdams, John Slattery, Stanley Tucci, Brian Darcy James, Lee Schreiber, Billy Crudup, all really good yes. and highly, highly recommended. And this is one of those where they go, this, there wasn't a lot of criticism about them taking poetic license. They were going, oh no, this is the way it happened. Yeah. Yeah, this is, this is what went down. Right. And that spotlight team had earned the Pulitzer Prize for public service in 2003. Rightly so, because, I mean, they broke this open yeah. in the United States. But in the, you know, just a, a couple of other ones that are named about that are documentaries or docudramas. Again, we've talked about the Keepers on the show. I, yeah. I think Keepers is really disturbing and poignant and another example of corruption on so many levels within the church and within the local government there where it occurred. Highly recommend watching yeah, that as well. Still one of my favorites. I think true crime documentary wise, I know yeah. we did our wrap up last week, but I think that's still one of my all time favorites. It's just, so um, it's very long though. <laughs> it is very long, but I, I yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. But so let's talk about fictionalized versions. Who's, what's your choice? So, okay. So not necessarily like a leader or a priest or a reverend, but of course, what comes to mind for me, and, and some of these are obviously like a little bit more in jest, right. but the devoted Opus Dei self-flagellator Silas from the Da Vinci yes. Code. He's also a hitman, albino monk, and not like the greatest hitman. I mean, would you pick an albino monk to like be the guy that you want to- That flies under the radar. Yeah, like yeah. slinks into the shadows. I don't and think so. And by the way, and still hot. <laughs> Still hot. Still um, hot. Like, yep. just looks like a complete nut job. You're like, mm, mm. I don't know. Still might be worth a date. Yes. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. But just, I'm thinking of that footage of like him in the Louvre, like with a hat on. And I'm like, you stand out like a star. Exactly. <laughs> what the heck? Well, I love uh, that that's always the uniform for going undercover. They do that in the Marvel movies all the time, right? where it's like a black windbreaker and a black yeah, hat. Like, and you're six foot two and up. handsome. Yeah, you're only making yourself more <laughs> handsome. Come on. <laughs> So one of his quotes is, each breath you take is a sin. No shadow will be safe again, for you will be hunted by angels. 
I don't know now, why I felt like pulling quotes. <laughs> I know, but I you know what? I like that you pulled that because Silas actually was abused himself and completely manipulated True. by the church. Mm. They like they took him from a child and and really abused him, indoctrinated him into this really twisted version of religious belief, which actually is an organization that is very powerful in the United States. I mean, I don't think they're making hitmen, but they are infiltrating college campuses. And they've got a lot of people in political places all around the country, which is really frightening. Okay, but conspiracy theorists. Let's I get know. Back Let me go. Let me just get away from that. <laughs> so another like horrible movie. <laughs> Like, oh no! Please, please don't watch this you because it's bad. You don't like the Da Vinci Code? Are you saying it's a horrible movie? <laughs> no, Da Vinci Code was great. I'm talking about my example. Okay, Mine okay. is terrible, and it was a big budget film that flopped. Yeah, and it was not even like a really great idea. It was a it's a Vin Diesel. Oh, that's it's right. It's a Vin Diesel car, if you will. It's called The Last Witch Hunter. And it's an action fantasy film with Vin Diesel as Calder, a tortured and lonely immortal witch hunter who has spent centuries battling dark magic practitioners. And so it's centering on something's happening in today's world where a coven of really powerful evil witches is unleashing this plague that's going to annihilate humanity and bring back like the prehistoric world with a master evil witch. And he's got his trusty buddy who's helping him and that's a young priest played by elijah wood and a really cool hip witch who runs a bar that that okay that character is actually really great it's the actress one of the actresses from game of thrones that was really cute but plot twist and spoiler alert okay so you know put your headphones on for people i know you're just aping you know you're aching to see this movie <laughs> yeah probably not the angelic and innocent looking elijah wood is actually a squib Remember from Harry Potter, the squibs were oh. people that were born to magical parents, but they don't have any power. So oh. he was a mortal born of two witches. And he's so pissed off that he doesn't have any power, that he's the one that set all of this in motion to get the witch queen back. Like she's going to give his powers. He he meets a really awful end, which is a lot of fun. But this sounds horrible. <laughs> it's so bad. It's so bad because Vin Diesel is just like kind of grunting through the whole thing. It's really bad. I mean, uh, I kind of aim to have the talent that Vin, that Vin Diesel's manager had. Like what was publicist. with his, yeah, his publicist, his manager, his representation, like whoever got him that legacy and got him these films. Like he was just such a thing for a while. Yeah. I mean, I mean like, aside from like Fast and Furious, like yeah, did yeah. all this other stuff. He's got talent, but I just like, I think that whole action star thing gets guys pulled into this. Like yeah. now you have to be this, but again, going back to other documentaries, the keepers really good. One that I didn't mention. Also, there's two documentaries out there about Jim Jones oh, and, sure. and how he, you know, which resulted in a horrible mass event, but he exhibits everything that we've been talking about today. Yeah. All the personality stuff, all the manipulation, but then merges, you know, emerges into full-blown psychopathy by the end, resulting in, in a terrible, terrible event. So all right. I, well I know you have your most evil that you want to okay. that you want to share with us. Who who's that, Dr. Shiloh? I do well let me read you a little description and see if our audience can guess who this is by okay. just, you know, these horrific laws that he's keeping in place. So this is a reverend and his son was killed in an accident after a boozy night out on the dance floor. 
And then some like angry, long haired teen from Chicago shows up in his cozy little town where he's a reverend with his sexy dance moves and trying to seduce his only daughter. Mm. And not only that, this teen just tries to turn the town upside down by getting them to make dancing legal again in time for the high school prom. I mean, Reverend Shaw moves from Footloose. He's trying to keep the kids down with their dancing. How, what's more egregious than that? Well, anybody <laughs> trying to outlaw dance, just, you know, that's, that's evil right there. It is. I think you and I can absolutely agree on that. One of my favorite movies of all time. Everyone's so amazing in this movie. It is a lot of fun, yeah. <laughs> but I, God, John Lithgow is just He's great. Such There's a so many. I mean, as as much as people think of it as like this sort of you know teen movie of the moment, there's some really poignant writing because he is he's a man who is traumatized by his son's death. Yeah, he's a, he is a man of faith, and he has allowed his own grief to really twist his morals. And his wife, Diane Weist, amazing oh, performance, she's magic. In she's this. the one that is just very gently trying to say, you know, you're, you're in the wrong here. Yeah. You need to figure this out. And then Kevin Bacon has a great scene and it's like, he's at his hippest. He's like just the beginning of his, right. his ascent to stardom really. Yep. And he goes between before the town council town council and quotes from the Bible that for every season, there is a time, there is a time for dance. And yeah, it's, it's a totally fun movie. Totally it fun is. Movie. It is. Okay. So I have a quote from Reverend Shaw Moose here. If our Lord wasn't testing us, how would you account for the proliferation of this obscene rock and roll music with its gospel of easy sexuality and relaxed morality? <laughs> But then, so you know, and, and Diane Weiss takes him aside one night when all shit's falling apart. Like his daughter is like, you know, she's sick yeah. of him and his wife looks at him and she says, when you and I were together, we got turned on by looking at each other across the room. Aww. And you think that that music is doing the heavy lifting here. It's just not, I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but right, right, right. it's such a great gentle way to challenge it. But you guys, this was an unintentionally long episode. We really didn't know that we were going to go, but I think that we hit on some, I'm really actually quite proud of this episode because I think we mm -hmm. hit on some very important points that need to be discussed more. So thank you for sticking through it. Please, as we said at the beginning, if you're going to go to CrimeCon UK, make it part of a vacation for the time of the year, if you're into that, or come join us. It was just such a blast. We yep. really had a good time. Yes, yes. And it will be in the fall this year. So I'm excited. I have not been to London in the fall. Yeah. Um, all right, everyone. Well, happy new year. Happy 2024. And we will see you next time on LA. Not so. Confidential. Bye, Bye guys. Folks. Bye. sincerely thank you for spending some time with us today. LA Not So Confidential is part of the Crawl Space Media Network in partnership with Glassbox Media. Each episode is hosted, produced, and written by Dr. Scott and Dr. Shiloh. Our post-production editing and sweetening magic is handled by the multi-talented Jason Usri of Ear Cult Productions. The LA Not So Confidential theme entitled Cool Vibes Film Noir is composed and performed by the talented Kevin McLeod. He graciously allows us to use his music via a Creative Commons attribution license, and you can check out all of Kevin's amazing work on YouTube. All of the resources for each episode can be found on our website at la-not-so-confidential.com. You can find us on Instagram at la-not-so-podcast, 
on Twitter at LA Not So Pod, and on Facebook at LA Not So Confidential. Media inquiries and bookings are scheduled at alienistentertainment at gmail.com. Please join us each month on Saturdays at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time for a live streaming and very interactive broadcast on YouTube entitled Behind the Couch. Stay tuned to all of our social media for our live streaming scheduling announcements. Subscribe to LA Not So Confidential so you never miss a new episode. And lastly, we'd be honored if you joined our Patreon at patreon.com slash LA Not So Podcast. With a subscription, you get an ad-free listening experience and you'll be the first notified about upcoming live events, social gatherings, and super cool swag coming your way. Thanks for listening and join in with us next time on LA. Not so. Confidential. Bye, folks.